Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Beavers are a keystone species whose existence supports entire ecosystems. In earlier centuries, they were killed by the millions in North America. There's a growing group of scientists, ranchers, and enthusiasts called beaver believers who advocate for these important rodents. We're going to talk about all things beaver today on the program. We'll be talking with Ben Goldfarb and Nate Norman, and I'll have my guests uh, introduce themselves. This conversation was recorded a couple of weeks ago. My name is Ben Goldfarb. Uh, I'm an environmental journalist based in Colorado. Uh, I'm the author of the book Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. And you and I had a conversation on that when the book first came out. We did, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So Nate, tell us your name and uh, a little bit about yourself. I'm Nate Norman. I'm a local resident here in Cache Valley, and I work with the uh, beaver facility uh, with USU. I didn't even know USU had a beaver facility. Yeah, not a lot of people know we exist, yeah. but we have a facility now for the last, I guess, four years, we figured out, something like that, um, out by the Coyote Research Center, and uh, we uh, live trap and relocate beavers, and okay. that facility is where we quarantine them. So live trap and relocate, what, uh, they're in areas where it'd be a danger to themselves? Is that um, the case? No, what, uh, usually where they're um, a nuisance to humans ah, um, okay. and causing mm-hmm. issues. Uh, we work with uh, partners with UDWR, mm-hmm. and uh, when people call in and there's an issue with a beaver, uh, they can get a permit to lethally remove the beaver, uh, but uh if they would rather have the beaver uh, live trap and relocated, uh, they direct them to myself, and uh, we try to assist them in that. What's it like working with beavers? It's super fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, beavers are a uh, remarkable animal. Uh, they have a lot of really cool things about them, but they're also pretty mellow. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than uh, like a, a coyote or a, a raccoon, we can handle them with just a... Uh, a protective what we call beaver bag and uh they're uh nice calm animals where do you relocate them to i guess a place where they good habitat for them yeah mm-hmm. yep um not always i guess uh sometimes we're relocating them where the habitat has been degraded and uh, we're trying to restore that habitat by uh, releasing beavers into that area um, and their dams can help to uh, restore the riparian areas. Um, we're also working with grad students that are doing research with the beavers and so sometimes they're released uh, right now down on the uh, Price River uh, where they're being uh, used for research. Uh, so Ben, um, you wrote a book on beavers. Uh, how did how did this, unless you grew up in, uh, you know, as a boy interested in beavers, how did you get uh was that the case, or did you, at some point, you got interested in beavers? That's right, yeah. You know, I, I always did uh, love beavers. I grew up in, uh, in in New York and spent a lot of time watching them uh, build and swim and uh, tail slap in uh, upstate New York. And then uh, a number of years ago, I guess in, in 2014, um, I was, you know, working as a journalist, uh, and I went to a beaver workshop in in, uh, in Washington State. And I didn't know what a beaver workshop entailed, but I, I knew that I wanted to be there. And it was just one scientist after another talking about how important these animals were for their piece of the puzzle. You know, they create amazing fish habitat. They restore degraded streams, as Nate alluded to. They prevent wildfire, the spread of wildfire in many cases. They sequester carbon. They improve water quality. You know, it was just one 
ologist after another getting up to uh, describe how critical these animals were. And I, I realized that uh, there's just an amazing story here about, you know, people like Nate working with these incredible rodents to restore our degraded ecosystems to solve some of the problems that we've created over the last few hundred years uh, of environmental damage. Uh, I want to follow up immediately on on w- one of those benefits from beavers prevent wildfires. Yeah, you know, as as uh, as Joe Wheaton at uh, here at Utah State is fond of saying, water doesn't burn, right? And and beavers uh, by spreading water out on the landscape create these wonderful fire refugia and uh, and fire breaks in some cases. You know, they they I've seen places where you know a fire will burn to a, a pond edge and basically be stopped in its in its tracks. And uh, you know, Emily Fairfax out in California has done a lot of wonderful research, uh, basically proving that you know these animals are creating fabulous fire refugia. Uh, you know, the kind of these wet, lush places on the landscape. And during a wildfire, you know, all of the critters uh, can retreat to these refugia, survive the wildfire, and then repopulate the area. And that's something that, you know, that beaver people have observed anecdotally for many years, you know, including here in in, in Utah. Um, and just in the last couple of years, you know, really thanks to this scientist, Emily Fairfax, you know, we have the kind of the peer-reviewed data to prove what we've always known about these animals. Now... You said a word that uh, may work against the brand, if we could call it a marketing brand. Rodent. <laughs> Beaver's a rodent? Beaver's a rodents. yeah. They're, they're North America's largest rodent, uh, the world's uh, second largest rodent. And they're pretty big. I think Nate said he's caught some, some 60-pounders over the years. So they're uh, quite a bit heftier, I think, than most people realize. Well, tell me about that. Uh, how, how big, how small? What, what's the range? Well, um, you know, beaver's range from kits to adults and uh, one thing interesting about them is they grow throughout their lifespan so one of the ways we can tell how old the beaver is is by the size of it and uh, we have caught some pretty big beavers in this area especially in the logan river but uh, what we have found that's kind of interesting is um, sort of the, the the middle range the juveniles are the best to relocate because that's the time in their life when they're kind of the teenagers and they're moving out of the house and settling and finding their own place so that's been kind of interesting and fun so they grow throughout their life what what about their teeth their teeth grow throughout their life too uh-huh, yeah. but they're always being worn down by uh-huh. chewing on the trees yeah um, in some cases where beavers don't need to make um, dams or lodges, they'll chew on trees just to wear down their teeth so that they ah. don't overgrow. One thing you point out, I think I learned from your book, Ben, is beavers are a keystone species. Right. So a, a keystone species is a species that supports a lot of weight in an ecosystem. You know, they, it, it's kind of a term borrowed from architecture. You know, the keystone is the top block in the stone arch. And if you pull out that block, the whole arch crumbles. And beavers, likewise, are they're doing a lot of work uh, in these aquatic ecosystems, right? You know, we know that here in the West, you know, water is life and beavers by building dams and creating ponds and wetlands are supporting a lot of life. So whether that's, you know, moose or waterfowl or uh, amphibians like the boreal toad. I just, just this afternoon, I, uh, I was, I was watching a couple of cutthroat trout uh, spawn in the, in the uh, kind of the gravelly riffle right below a beaver dam, uh, you know, as they create this habitat complexity that's really good for fish. So, you know, basically name a species uh, and it's, it's going to do pretty well in these aquatic habitats that beavers engineer. So in the book, I recall there's a, uh, I mean, they have success stories, right? Where, where habitat for beavers has been restored, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. And, then, and then it's pretty spectacular 
success stories. One of those is uh, Susie Creek. I don't know if you call, call that one. Oh, of course. Yeah. So the, the, that's a, a famous stream in uh, in Elko County in, in northeastern Nevada. You know, and basically that's a, an interesting story because there, you know, the creek was degraded by about uh, a century of, of kind of unmanaged cattle grazing where the cows ate all the vegetation, destabilized the banks. You know, you get this kind of catastrophic erosion and the stream ends up this sort of lifeless uh, channel. Um, so there, you know, the Bureau of Land Management and the local ranchers basically worked together to implement, you know, some pretty common sense grazing restrictions, you know, a little bit of fencing along the stream. And, you know, nobody was really thinking about beavers in that case. They just, they were just trying to, you know, improve riparian health. But, you know, as the willow and cattails and other aquatic plants regrew, you know, beavers have this kind of magical way of finding uh, finding their way into available habitat. And beavers showed up in uh, around 2000 or so and just proliferated and uh, added an enormous amount of, uh, of course, you know, of standing water to the stream. But they also, you know, kind of the amazing result there was they actually took a kind of a seasonal stream and by slowing the water down, uh, made it a, a perennial stream, you know, ensured that there would still be water in the stream by, you know, August, September, the really uh, hot, dry season. And they also impounded a huge amount of groundwater, right? When you look at a, a beaver pond, you know, there, of course, there's all of the visible surface water that you see, but what you don't see is the weight of that pond forcing water into the ground, recharging aquifers, raising water tables, hydrating the soil. So beavers are basically, you know, in that case, they they irrigated or sub-irrigated this entire valley. And that was really wonderful, of course, for the local ranchers, you know, who saw more, you know, more uh, forage in their in their fields and, uh, you know, more weight on their cows and more money in their back pocket now. So, you know, in, in northeast Nevada, now there's this really kind of beaver-loving cluster of ranchers who have uh, experienced the, the benefits of these animals. And, uh, you know, that's what we're trying to create uh, around the country. It's just, you know, this expanded understanding of how incredibly valuable these, these creatures can be for, for private landowners. So I understand uh, we're going to be heading up to Preston area to see a, another success story, right? Yeah, that's right. That's uh, we're going there tomorrow, uh, and um, you know we're going to visit uh, Jay Wild, who's a uh, another another rancher who's really experienced uh, the benefits of beavers. And but Jay likewise, uh, you know, had a kind of a seasonal stream uh, on his property that he you know, remembered being perennial in his youth, and he kind of thought about you know what was happening on this stream back when it was flowing year round, and he realized, oh yeah, it had it had beavers, and so you know he uh, he and some folks at uh, Utah State and the Forest Service and elsewhere kind of worked together to uh, bring beavers back to his stream. They also built some uh, some beaver dam analogs, kind of human-made beaver mimicry structures, kind of like beaver kickstarters that give uh, give the beavers a, a little bit of a, a leg up. And uh, you know the beavers just went gangbusters. And um, I'm I, I was here I was here in 2017 when I think there were a few dozen dams. And now Nate, I don't know how many there are. Probably a couple hundred at this yeah. point. Yeah, they're everywhere. And it's really been uh, amazing to watch the water that comes down and how much longer it's run um, through the year than it originally did. Jay was uh, calculating how many days it, it took that before to dry up at his place, and I think he said last year it was you know the longest ever. So, an additional benefit to that is that uh, his granddaughter has been able to uh, catch fish in the uh, ponds that the beavers made that uh, he remembered doing as a child, but after the beavers were removed, the most of the fish had, had been gone. So uh, there are some benefits. Uh, you, uh, what do you find, uh, Nate, that uh, people are generally 
supportive of this kind of thing or, or, or just of the, of the relocation of the relocation yeah i'd say you know in general a lot of people have issues with beavers right they cut down their trees they cause flooding um you know they get in irrigation canals they generally you know cause issues but in general i don't think that they want to lethally remove the beaver uh, they just don't want them causing them issues so that's where they they tend to contact us and we can kind of come up with a win-win situation where we can go in and we can remove the beavers or come up with a solution for, you know, like their problems and uh, hopefully take the beavers to a place where they're going to do some good and and help some people out. Of course, these repairing areas are quite valuable. Um, on the one hand, pest, but on the other hand, as we've been saying, you know, very valuable species. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, one of the things I like to tell people is, you know, if a rancher builds a, uh, a stock pond and spring runoff comes out and washes it out, they got to go back up and fix it. If a uh, beaver makes a pond and spring wash out, washes it out, the beaver fixes it. You know, that's a nice way to uh, keep water on the land and, uh, you know, keep your livestock happy and healthy. You're listening to Access Utah, and we're talking about beavers on the program today. Talking with Ben Goldfarb, author of Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter, and a Cache Valley resident, Nate Norman, who works with the USU Beaver Ecology and Relocation Center. And uh, coming up in the next segment, we'll uh, talk a bit about beavers at Walmart in Cache Valley, among other topics. Hope you'll stay with us following, the, following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our subject for the hour is beavers, a keystone species whose existence supports entire ecosystems. There's a growing group of scientists, ranchers, and enthusiasts called beaver believers who advocate for beavers. We're talking about beavers today with environmental journalist Ben Goldfarb and with Nate Norman, who works with the USU Beaver Ecology and Relocation Center. Ben, what, uh, what's progress, I guess, nationwide, worldwide? Yeah, I think that uh, progress has been remarkable in the last few years. You know, thanks in large part to people like uh, like Nate. You know, they're just projects uh, all over the all over the country, especially the West. Now, you know, where where they're doing exactly what Nate's doing. You know, live trapping uh, beavers that are causing problems and and relocating them mostly to to public land where they're you know out of out of harm's way and can really do some uh, some incredible good. You know, and I think that look, it's it's you know it's hard I think for us to understand here in the 21st century just how ubiquitous and prolific these animals were historically. You know, prior to European arrival, there were as many as 400 million beavers uh, on this continent. There were beavers in, you know, practically every creek, stream, spring, and, uh, and, and pond in, in uh, you know, in the American West. And, uh, you know, we've, we, when we wiped this animal out or almost wiped it out, you know, we, we lost uh, a lot of that incredible historic beaver capacity, you know, and people like Nate are re-beavering this continent. You know, they're bringing these animals back to uh, places where they they used to live and and uh, can live again if we uh, if we let them so this decimation of this population was uh, I guess a lot of factors right fashion killing beavers I guess for their pelts is that yeah, exactly. Mostly what's happening? Yep. Uh, yeah, you know, beavers, along with 
timber and cod were probably you know the most important uh, economic resource that Europeans uh, found in the the so-called New World. And you know the the extermination of beavers began in the early 1600s in New England and kind of spread south and west across the continent. And you know by 1850 or so, beavers were functionally extinct in the in the lower 48. You know there were just a, a few, maybe a hundred thousand or so hanging on up in Canada. Um, and then you know by 1900 or so, you know states kind of started to wise up to realize, hey, these are pretty useful animals. Beavers began to be reintroduced uh, in a lot of uh, a lot of the places where they'd been trapped out for their their pelts. Um, but, you know, as beavers recovered, they discovered that, you know, we'd colonized a lot of their former habitat in the meantime, right? That's, you know, I think that's really what's at the heart of the conflicts that Nate is, is solving is the fact that, you know, good beaver habitat and good human habitat are the same habitat. You know, we both like these, you know, these, these broad, fertile valleys, these low gradient stream corridors, you know, that's where we build our infrastructure and that's where beavers like to live too. So when we colonized all of the uh, available beaver habitat, you know, we, uh, you know, we kind of took over the places where these animals wanted to live. And as beavers started to recover, uh, you know, they're moving back uh, into the places that, you know, we've kind of colonized in their absence. So that's, you know, that's kind of the, the, the place that we're at now, I think, is that beavers and humans are overlapping uh, in a lot, of, uh, a lot of stream corridors. And, uh, you know, people like Nate have to solve those problems. So the fact that your services are called upon, Nate, to relocate beavers. Does that mean, and I don't know if we know the numbers, are, are beavers' populations increasing or decreasing? You know, I don't know the numbers, mm-hmm. but from my observations, I would say that they're increasing. Mm-hmm. Um, and partially because the demand for trapping has diminished quite a bit, at least for Uh, beaver fur. The prices are way down, and so there's not a lot of recreational trapping done for them. But that has pushed more of the trapping into the nuisance-type trapping. And uh, so a lot of beavers are being killed uh, because they're nuisance. Uh, So I guess is that education? I guess uh, people call you and you can do a live trapping, relocate, rather than than kill them. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the hope. That's what we're trying to accomplish. And uh, the other thing that uh, we try to push is to come up with, uh, you know, methods for living with beaver and to, um, you know, maybe protect your trees, maybe come up with uh, some different ideas for controlling the water levels in the ponds and things like that. But in some cases, yeah, to live trap and relocate is kind of the best option. Uh, how best protect your trees? I guess if you don't want a beaver to chew them. <laughs> protect them. Ben and I were uh, talking mm. about this just recently. Um, you know, one of the you know tried and true method is to to fence around the trees, but a lot of people don't know how to do that correctly, and they'll use too flimsy of a, a fence, like a chicken wire or something like that, and the beaver just pulls it down and mm. chews on the tree. Um, but there's um, some new methodology that I'd like to try out some more, and that is to uh, mix sand with paint and to paint the bark and um, I hear that's a pretty good deterrent as well for uh, keeping beavers from taking down trees. Um, another thing is is that beavers don't tend to, to take down all the trees. They have specific species that they're they're more interested in. Uh, they, they they cottonwoods, willows, and aspen, and uh, so sometimes just protecting those kind of trees is um, appropriate. The other thing is is a lot of the nuisance calls come from somebody who has a tree in their yard and all of a sudden it's chewed down and they're afraid every tree in their yard's soon to follow. And a lot of times that's not that a a beaver is 
setting up a, a home in their backyard, it tends to be one of those juvenile um, sub-adults that's just moving through. And uh, he may, you know, chew down a tree in somebody's yard. And the next day he's gone. Mm-hmm. And he's not going to cause any more problems. But I know that people love their trees, and when they lose one, they tend to freak out. Uh, yeah, you can imagine. Uh, so some some methods there to, to protect your trees coexist, right? That's yeah. The, yeah. Uh, so, Ben, um, tell me about beaver families, beaver sociality. What, uh, how many beavers tend to tend to be in one area? Yeah, I'll be interested to hear Nate's observations, too. I mean, a, a typical colony is two to as many as eight or so beavers, uh, you know, and that's the, the male and female, you know, the, the mating pair who are generally monogamous and mate for life. Uh, and then you've typically got three-year classes of offspring all cohabitating in the lodge together, all hanging out together. Uh, you know, you've got the, the, the baby beavers, the, the newborn kits, uh, the one-year-olds and the two-year-olds. So three kind of generations of siblings all, all hanging out. Uh, and then those two-year-olds will, you know, disperse out looking for, uh, you know, their own territories. Uh, and that's when, that's when they tend to uh, end up in, uh, in, in Nate's life, uh, when, they, when they find their way into an irrigation ditch or a, or a stock pond or something. But, you know, they're, they're kind of amazingly, uh, you know, human in some ways, right? That, you know, they're, they're these, these cooperative breeders, you know, the, the older siblings are sort of involved in the, uh, the, the upkeep and the care and the raising of the, the younger siblings. You know, they're all working together on the, the lodge and the dam. Uh, so, you know, they, they live in these, these tidy little uh, nuclear families that are, you know, very, uh, very sympathetic in some ways. Nate, anything to add there? Um, yeah, just kind of what Ben was saying. You know, a lot of the calls that I get are not from uh, these established colonies. They tend to be more from uh, a single or a couple beavers and usually these sub-adults that have moved out from home and uh, found some mischief and got themselves in the wrong situation. Um, but, uh, yeah, occasionally we're called in to, to, to trap an entire colony. And, and one thing uh, – kind of cool about what we do is is in the facility uh, we hold the beavers and try to get the entire family together before relocating them Um, and so then that way they can be relocated as a a family unit Um, it's sometimes easier said than done but uh, we we do what we can to try to relocate them all together so ben what will be the ideal situation uh take the western united states uh you know it probably can't be like it was right uh, because we we humans would have to leave, I guess, or fewer <laughs> of us. What, what's what's ideal though? Yeah, you know, I, th- I mean, I th- to me, I think that um, you know one of the reasons that I, I like coming to uh, to Logan, especially, is is you know, it's it's I think that it's proof positive that these animals can really live very close to people. Uh, you know, there are beavers living in the Walmart parking lot, uh, you know, in large part because, uh, you know, Nate and his his colleagues have kind of worked with, you know, the city and with with uh, with Walmart to, to, you know, create a plan where, they, you know, they can they can live in that little wetland next to the parking lot and, and uh, you know, and still have any potential flooding impacts mitigated or managed, you know? So I think that if, if we're able to, you know, look, I mean, really what's contr- what's preventing beavers from recolonizing a lot of their former domain is our own ability to tolerate them, right? Uh, you know, we, we like everything as a species, you know, kind of nice and neat and well-managed. Uh, and, you know, beavers create a, a little bit of a mess. But if we, you know, if we can figure out ways to, to, 
manage that mess and to live alongside that mess, you know, as, as, uh, as Nate is proving, uh, you know, these animals can be basically anywhere, you know, there, I mean, there are beavers in downtown Seattle, there are beavers, uh, you know, in, in, in Copenhagen, you know, there are beavers in, in the Bronx in New York city, you know, these are, these are not necessarily like wolves or grizzly bears, you know, where you have to go to Yellowstone to see them. These are animals that are capable of living alongside people, uh, as long as we humans are capable of exercising a, a little bit of tolerance. So I I think that beavers can, you know, really, really, it's true that we'll never get to, uh, you know, 400 million beavers again in North America. But, you know, I think that we still have a very long way to go in terms of, you know, where these animals can be uh, as long as we can live alongside them. I'd forgotten, hit the papers uh, a while back, but uh, beavers at Walmart? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, actually kind of how I got all involved in this whole project was um, I was a... uh, wetland biologist for the uh, South Logan uh, Walmart project, and uh, I had designed and mitigated some of their wetland impacts and was also friends with uh, Nick Bowes and Joe Wheaton when uh, they got a call about some beavers that were causing issues in the Walmart parking lot, and uh, they were looking at going in and putting in a uh, beaver deceiver that would kind of help control the water levels in the uh, beaver ponds without flooding the um, parking lot. Uh, and they wanted to know if uh, it needed to be permitted. So um, I did a little checking and found out that they were fine to to put that into the, the wetlands. But at the same time was like, hey, could I come out and learn more about this? I want to see what you guys are doing. And mm-hmm. um, I wasn't able to go out uh, when they installed that. But uh, very soon after that, started volunteering with them. And, you know, before I knew it, I was uh, the uh, beaver trapper for the group. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I'm... Uh, working with the uh, beaver facility. Off, off you go, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what did you call this device, beaver deceiver? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I can describe it really well, but it, it basically uh, is a method for controlling the the level of a pond. It's also sometimes called a pond leveler. And it's a pipe that uh, runs vertical and then goes down into the pond and goes horizontal through the dam. And then the, the, the inlet is sort of fenced off. And um, by having the water go in through that pipe, it keeps the beaver from realizing that the water's escaping there. And no matter how high they keep building up their dam, the water stays at that same level. And so it's a, it's a, it's a method to kind of live with beavers and to keep their ponds at a manageable level. Is this something that's, uh, you know, done often? You know, you, you work with projects uh, the, to try to preserve wetlands and uh beavers would be in some cases involved or or is this kind of unusual here the beavers at walmart i i think it's fairly unusual yeah yeah i mean i the the way that beavers create wetlands is something that you know always intrigued me uh because as a wetland biologist uh i would design wetlands and uh i would i would look to nature for sort of those uh models for you know creating wetlands and what you know, a nice wetland looks like. And so, yeah, getting into working with the beavers was kind of a a natural step for me. Tell me a little bit more about how beavers create wetlands. I mean, we, you know, they build dams, but Mm -hmm. um, that's the main thing. Well, Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, Mm -hmm. the water that uh, the beavers back up behind the dams um, is more than just the open water that, that people see, the pond, you know, that's what people think of. But when they do that, a lot of the water is also pushed into the soil and ends up in the groundwater. So that 
water that's being pushed back into the, the soil and groundwater, that helps to um, kind of help the entire area around that pond flourish, be wetter, greener, and create wetlands, which, you know, as Ben was saying, is great for all kinds of different species, mm-hmm. uh, as well as, you know, livestock and cattle. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, they, they create a, a complex um, environment, and wetlands is one of those components. Anything to add, uh, Ben, on, on, on that? No, I think I think Nate, uh, you know, Nate touched on the the main points. I mean, you know, one thing I'll just I'll just return to the the uh, the beaver deceiver conversation for for a second. I, you know, I think that um, you know one of the really important things to remember about the the beaver deceivers is that you know they're incredibly cost effective as well as being effective at solving problems, right? You know, when you have uh, a situation where you're trapping beavers either either lethally or or live trapping and relocating them, um, you know, I mean, the issue there is that. You're just all you're doing is creating a vacancy for the next family of beavers, right? As long as you know, as long as that that culvert or irrigation ditch is attracting them, you know they're always going to come back. And and uh, that's the nice thing about the beaver deceiver is that you know you can install one of these contraptions um, and basically solve the problem right then and there. Uh, and the beavers can remain in place, uh, keep doing their thing. Um, so you know there have been there have been studies, uh, you know, sort of cost benefit analyses of beaver deceivers, basically showing that you know they're much much more cost effective um, in many cases than, than lethal trapping because, you know, uh, instead of paying a trapper every year, you know, you pay a couple thousand bucks for, uh, you know, one of these these beaver deceivers uh, and basically uh, have solved the problem for the next 20 years. So I think that, you know, that that's the live capture and, and relocation work that, that Nate does is, is incredibly important. But, you know, we also need to implement more strategies for, for living alongside these animals and letting them stay put where they where they are because, you know, that's, that's what's so great about the Walmart parking lot is that that's a, that's a place where, you know, we've got all of the wonderful ecological benefits of these animals in a very urban area, thanks to, you know, one of these non-lethal kind of coexistence devices. And, you know, that's, that's kind of the great thing about beavers is that, again, if, you know, if we're, if we're willing to, you know, use, kind, use the strategies that let them live alongside us, um, you know, they'll happily uh, oblige. Are there other creative ways that people are coming up with to coexist better? You know, I mean, Nate, Nate was talking about uh, tree fencing. Um, you know, one one case study that I, I really like is uh, so I, I live um, in the Arkansas Valley in, in Colorado, and and there, uh, you know, we've got like a little sort of stormwater pond, essentially a little a little um, kind of effluent pond, and you know, beavers are living in it very happily, and there's a, a land trust uh, managing that property, and they had these beautiful old cottonwood trees they wanted to protect, so they fenced off the cottonwoods so the beavers couldn't get at them, but they left left unfenced the non-native Siberian elm trees, and beavers took those down. So that was invasive vegetation management using a beaver as your, as your agent. I thought that was a, a pretty cool and, and creative example of problem solving. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Beavers are our subject today, and we're talking with uh, environmental journalist Ben Goldfarb, and with uh, Nate Norman, who works with the USU Beaver Ecology and Relocation Center. Coming up the final segment following a break, we'll talk with Ben Goldfarb about uh, his new book be coming out uh, in the next few months or so, or next year, uh, on road ecology. And uh, here's just a little bit uh, about that uh, today 
for humans, roads are ubiquitous. Uh, they're so ubiquitous, they're invisible. For animals, from toads to Tasmanian devils, they're forces of death and disruption. Today, road ecologists are striving to blunt their impacts. So we'll talk a bit about road ecology near the end of this conversation following a break. You're listening to Access Utime. Tom Williams. We're talking about beavers on the program today with environmental journalist Ben Goldfarb, author of Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter, and Cache Valley resident Nate Norman, who works with the USU Beaver Ecology and Relocation Center. So, Ben, you've... Um I don't know if you coined this phrase, but the, the, all these group of people interested in beavers call them beaver believers. Yeah, I, I certainly didn't didn't coin that phrase, okay. um, but uh, it's you know it's it's really become quite the uh, quite the social movement. Um, you know, they're beaver believers uh, on you know many many continents now, and uh, you know probably in every in every state. Uh, and you know, I think that one of the great things about beaver believers is that you know they a lot of them tend to come from sort of different walks of life, you know. Nate's not a wildlife biologist. He's, a, you know, a, a wetlands guy. But, you know, beavers kind of pulled him into their orbit, you know. And I mean, some of the some of the best uh, beaver people in this country are, you know, former physician's assistants and uh, child psychologists and hairdressers and realtors, you know, people who uh, just, uh, you know, didn't have a beaver background but became enchanted with these animals and, and recognized how uh, incredibly important they are. Um, so, you know, that, that, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, that happens with, uh, you know, woodchucks or, uh, you know, ground squirrels or, <laughs> or weasels, you know. Beavers just have this kind of unique way, I think, of, uh, of pulling people uh, into, their, into their, their lives, you know. And that's, uh, you know, it's a kind of a testament, I think, to how, uh, how, how important they are uh, for, for ecosystems. I'm trying to think up a, a word for weasels. We, weasel, I can't. Weasel wanderers, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> weasels don't tend to lend themselves to this as much, I guess. Maybe not. Yeah. Uh, where, where are beavers found? I guess where I'm going with this is uh, you have beaver believers in places where beavers aren't. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a good question. Um, there's a there's just a, a Japanese translation of my book released, and there are no beavers in Japan. So that maybe I guess there maybe maybe that's a that's a place with some some stealth beaver believers. Uh, you know, beavers are found in uh, you know they're found in every every state except for Hawaii. Uh, you know, they, they they range as far south as northern Mexico and uh, as far north as the as the tundra line basically. And they're also Eurasian beavers, kind of a, a sister species to our North American beaver, um, which lives in Europe and Asia. Believe it or not. Yeah. And that animal, too, has had kind of a similar trajectory, you know, wiped out or nearly wiped out in the 19th century and, and only recently restored. And now, you know, beavers are increasing their range all over the European continent. You know, there are beavers showing up in places like uh, Italy and Spain and, and um, you know, much of I mean, much of Eastern Europe has kind of been re-beavered. There are big beaver populations in France and Germany. And, you know, now they're recovering in, uh, in England and Scotland. Um, so, you know, this is really uh, an international movement of, of beaver believers. I can't resist that. I remember from your book, this is just parenthetical, Idaho's Fish and Game Department airdropped beavers? That's right, yeah, in, in, in 1948. Seems like that is fraught with peril. I, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, Nate, Nate have, you, have you tried that? <laughs> uh, no, I haven't. <laughs> yeah. No, no yeah. plans to add that to your... Uh, 
No, li- no, and I don't plan on, on you know, yeah. dropping in with a beaver either. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. they were trying relocation, were they, or what? Were right, they, they were, to... yeah, they, I mean, they were, you know, they were basically doing, uh, you know, a kind of a 1948 version of what Nate's doing. They were, you know, they were solving a conflicts as, you know, as beavers began to recover in kind of the middle of the 20th century. And, you know, they were live trapping those, uh, those problem-causing beavers. Uh, and, uh, you know, then they, they tried to... Um, you know, relocate them to what is today uh, the Frank Church Wilderness. Um, first, they tried moving them on horseback. Uh, the horses didn't take very kindly to that. I know that Nate has done some horseback <laughs> relocations, but uh, at least those horses in Idaho weren't uh, weren't too thrilled about it. Um, but, you know, it was 1948. It was just sort of post-World War II. They had all of these uh, surplus parachutes and airplanes on hand. And, um, you know, one of those uh, fish and game biologists had the bright idea of trying to airdrop some. And, uh, you know, they kind of designed these special special crates that fell open upon being uh, being dropped to the ground. And they, they dropped uh, 76 beavers uh, in 1948. 75 of the beavers survived. One beaver, unfortunately, uh, escaped from the crate in midair and fell to his death. Yeah. Um, very sad, yeah. Um, but, you know, the next year when they flew back over the places where they had dropped them, they actually saw new dams and lodges and all the places where beavers had been dropped. So that was uh, that was highly, highly effective. So, Nate, I, I don't know if you want to write a grant for that. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, at least in 1948, that was state of the art. Nobody's doing that anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll suggest that to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it'd be interesting. But it is interesting that we've we've been able to uh, work with our partners and relocate beavers into some remote areas here in Cache Valley by using um, some of the. Uh, local uh, horsemen to, um, you know, basically uh, horse the uh, beavers back to some remote areas. Are there, are there, are there, are there in, in the cages and what, how do you, how do you, you know what, them? Um, they figured out a way to get the uh, beavers into, and I, I'm not a horseman, so I can't think of the actual term, but basically a, a hard saddle pack. Oh. And they were able to haul the beavers up in that way. Uh, and I guess the beavers are somewhat docile. I guess they're not. Yeah. Yeah. As long yeah. as they're not moving around too much and spooking the horses, um, yeah, they're a pretty docile animal compared yeah. to a lot of things. Hadn't even thought about that, uh, interaction between the beaver and the and the horse. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Calling a live animal was, I think, it was the biggest issue for the horse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we just have a few minutes left. Ben, let's loop back to the, the ecological benefits. Um, we started at the beginning of the program. Maybe, you know, talk a little bit more about that, how, how beavers, I guess, radiate out in, in effects on other species and, and then an overall a healthy ecosystem. Yeah, you know, and, and they're, I mean, in addition to being hugely important to other species, they're, you know, hugely important to us, too. You know, the, the, just the, the litany of ecological benefits that beavers provide is just is so long you know here here in the west they're incredible at mitigating drought right we you know we're losing our snowpack uh but build, beavers are building you know thousands of little reservoirs up in the high country and you know storing storing water for us uh you know in places like maryland they're being you know they're being sort of restored because they they're really good at filtering water uh right a big you know kind of the stream is you know comes down and hits the beaver the beaver dam and all of the suspended nitrates and phosphorus 
Icarus and heavy metals have a chance to settle out and basically be entrained in the pond. Uh, so they're really good at improving water quality and, you know, they're being restored on the East Coast for that reason. You know, you've got uh, places like England and Scotland, which are, you know, very rainy. Uh, and beavers are actually fantastic flood mitigators, right? All of that, you know, big pulse of storm water uh, comes racing downstream and it hits a beaver complex and it gets captured in the pond or spread out onto the floodplain or stored in the ground. So beavers are really good at, at flood mitigation. I think that's kind of magical. You know, we've got these two polar opposite problems, drought and flooding, uh, both being exacerbated by climate change. And beavers are helping us solve those opposite problems by stabilizing flows and kind of evening out the, the, uh, the hydrograph. Um, so that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of the magic of, of beavers, I think, is that you know, you've got drought and flood and they're helping us tackle both of them. Uh, I had a friend who was driving up Logan Canyon, saw some roadkill, thought maybe that might be a beaver. That's my inelegant way to transition to your next project. I want to have you tell me a little bit about road ecology. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, and, and Nate's got some good uh, or not good, but, um, you know, interesting uh, beaver roadkill observations, too. Um, yeah. The, the, book, the book that I'm, I'm working on now is, is about road ecology, as, as, uh, as you said, Tom, uh, which is basically the science of how roads and nature interact and, uh, you know, and how we can kind of uh, mitigate some of those negative interactions like roadkill um, through the use of, of uh, technologies like roadside fencing and wildlife crossing structures, you know, those bridges and tunnels that, uh, you know, a lot of listeners have probably Probably seen to help wildlife get safely across the road. But to me, you know, I think it's the relationship between that topic and the topic of my last book, Beavers, are, you know, they're sort of both about the sort of secret or hidden ways in which we've changed or damaged nature. You know, I think that, I mean, beaver trapping, you know, I don't, I don't think that most people think about beaver trapping uh, as being one of the things that profoundly changed the face of the continent, one of the sort of historical ecological disasters that, you know, that really profoundly shaped North America. But, you know, when you lose beavers, you lose, you know, you lose millions and millions of acres of ponds and wetlands, you know, and really, uh, you know, dry up a lot of areas that were historically wet and lush. And, you know, I think by the same token, we, we take roads for granted a little bit in our lives. You know, they're so, they're so ubiquitous uh, in our lives. They're such daily forces or features um, that we don't really think about how they, they might appear to uh, an elk or a black bear or a salamander or a, or a beaver, you know? And so that's what I'm trying to do in, in this next book is, is kind of reveal the, the somewhat hidden costs of roads on, on nature and, and think about, um, you know, ways in which we can sort of heal that relationship between, you know, between our infrastructure and, and the land. We'll look forward to that book uh, coming out. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Nate, um, so it seems from our discussion anyway that uh, I guess humans are <laughs> one of the big problems for, for beavers right I don't know if they have other predators but but roads right and uh, yeah, I, I, sure. I can envision a, a beaver is not going to get across the road real fast <laughs> right yeah you know Ben and I were just having a discussion over lunch I think about uh, the the Walmart project and you know how it seemed that it was pretty successful in and with the, the the water control and things like that and then Unfortunately, I'd seen a few roadkill um, in that area from, you know, just having beaver in that kind of mm -hmm. setting, you know, and not having some kind of controls for beaver crossing or, you know, safe movement of the animals. It does create another issue by having um, beavers in an urban environment. Yeah, we got, we've got ducks in my neighborhood. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, this, and, and cars are pretty good. Of course, it's residential. Yeah. 
neighborhood. Cars will, you see a car slow down, and you think, okay, they're stopping for the duck, right? Right. Um, but but it's, <laughs> it's that little dance, right? And 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 you never know what's what's going to happen. Uh, so Ben, um, maybe give you the, the the final word here. You hopeful about about beavers the, the numbers are increasing overall are they or uh, what's what's happening yeah that's you know it's a I, I wish i wish we knew the answer to that question you know very i mean very few states really monitor their beaver population so you know we don't really know what's happening with beaver numbers but you know anecdotally as nate said it, it does seem like they're uh increasing in a lot of places and i you know i, I am hopeful in that it, it does seem like social attitudes are, are really changing. You know, I, I think that, um, I mean, certainly, you know, you meet, you meet people who, uh, you know, who are anti-beaver. They're, they're out there for sure. And Nate probably deals with them every day. Um, but, you know, by, by the same token, uh, it does seem like, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people are really learning to embrace these animals and recognizing that, hey, you know, they're, uh, they have a, a vital role to play uh, in our, our, our ecosystems. Um, so it, it seems like social attitudes are changing around beavers. And, you know, and that can be, uh, you know, only, only a good thing. If, uh, you know, if people, uh, you know, call, call Nate instead of, uh, you know, using, using their, their 22 or something. Um, so it, it, uh, it does, it does feel like we're, we're on the right track for this critter. So how, how do they get in contact with you then? If you've got a beaver, you want to relocate? Yeah, they can just, uh, call me directly. My number is, uh, 435-757-3815. And, uh, yeah, we work with landowners and we also utilize, uh, some local trappers that, uh, um, have historically lethally trapped and now are working with us to do live trapping. And the book is Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. So uh, uh, we'll put in a plug for the book here. Thanks a lot, Tom. And uh, next book coming out, be, I guess, be called Road Ecology. Is that... Uh, I wish we had, wish some, we had a title, some yeah. clever title, yeah, and then it'd be, right. it'd be about, about road ecology. Yeah, the next book's about road ecology. Yeah, yeah. I, wish, I wish we, I wish we had a title. Yeah, yeah. we need one. <laughs> Very good. Uh, well, thanks to both of you for coming in. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank, Thank you. you, Tom. And thank you for listening to Access Utah today. That was Tom's conversation with Ben Goldfarb and Nate Norman. And now we'll go out like we do on Thursdays with Leo T and Skywatcher. It's many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T here as we look up, look around, and get just a little bit lost in space. After dark, Vega is a very bright star, very high in the east, coming up over the mountains after dusk. Barely lower left of it is Epsilon Lyrae, a fairly easy-to-see double star forming one leg of an equilateral triangle. Use binoculars if you're not in the mountains of the sandstone waves or by the ocean. This double is really cool. It's a double, double star. That's right, two double stars. Epsilon forms one corner of this roughly equilateral triangle with Vega and Zeta Lyrae and crosses the sky through the night as a beautiful white beacon. And way, way out, about 132 million miles, is Adolphus, the asteroid, but it's coming closer. 18 countries and 100 scientists have teamed up to test the asteroid defense systems, which are designed to spot a hazardous Earth asteroid. And so happens that they've been using Adolphus a bit because in 2029, Adolphus will come closer than the moon and closer than many satellites. The asteroid, named after an Egyptian mythical serpent, will be blazing by the Earth at about 19 thousand miles from our precious Gaia and it's a big one about a thousand feet wide. NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission will visit Adolphus keeping an eye on it during its close approach to Earth in 2029. Utah State Space Dynamics Lab built the electronics for three cameras on board this baby who visited deep space briquette Bennu and will drop off some of the samples it collected in the Utah West Desert next year. 
And E.T. sending Earth signals, answering our calls as the very large arrays and the Voyager send or take our messages out to possible alien life in the galaxy. Some very large listening arrays on Earth have picked up some fast radio bursts coming to us. In fact, the discovery of a second repeating fast radio burst Fast radio bursts are intense, brief flashes of radio frequency emissions lasting in the order of milliseconds. The 500-meter aperture spherical radio telescope and the Jansky Very Large Array and an international team of astronomers have discovered a second persistently active fast radio burst posing questions about the nature of the mysterious phenomenon. Hmm, have you ever seen the movie Contact, written by Carl Sagan, starring Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey? Well, uh, check it out. The Subaru Telescope in Hawaii localized the sources to be within the fringes of a dwarf galaxy nearly 3 billion light years from Earth. Hmm, maybe there, uh, there's some uh, people out there. And in space exploration of the first space age, on June 3rd through the 7th, 1965, the second piloted Gemini mission, Gemini 6, stayed aloft for four days, and astronaut Edward White performed the first EVA, that's extravehicular activity, or spacewalk, by an American. These were amazing times, and some amazing photos of Ed White spacewalking with the incredible blue Earth behind him are on the Skywatcher Leo T. Facebook page, along with sources for this segment. It's many cultures, one sky. In the zodiac and in the sky tonight is the constellation Virgo. With Spica, the constellation's brightest star that can be located by following the arc of the Big Dipper's handle as we arc to Big Orange Arcturus and then we spike down to Blue Spica, which is really the only star in Virgo that you can see with the naked eye, but Virgo has a considerably larger number of notable features that can be seen in the backyard telescope, or an even bigger telescope is even better. The Virgo cluster of galaxies is a remarkable part of the sky. It's well known to deep sky observers, and the Hubble telescope did some great observing of it. The Virgo cluster of galaxies contains perhaps 3,000 galaxies and is about 40 million light years away away from the Milky Way, the spectacular Sombrero galaxy is only 25 million light years away. Virgo is included in the ancient star catalogs of Eudoxus, an ancient Greek astronomer, mathematician, scholar, and a student of Plato, Eratos of Soli, and Ptolemy. Virgo is known in star lore as the goddess of agriculture and harvest time, holding a shock of wheat. So keep looking way out, look around here, and get a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR with translator station statewide and streaming live.